So I am excited to welcome Dr. Diana Hess to the podcast. Diana is the Dean of the UW-Madison School of Education. She's also the Principal Investigator of the Discussion Project, a professional development program that aims to strengthen campus-wide capacity to create welcoming, engaging, and academically rigorous classroom environments in which students experience productive classroom discussions on important topics and issues. Diana is the author or co-author of numerous peer-reviewed articles. The focus of today's conversation is one of those articles, a 2013 paper titled Classroom Deliberation in an Era of Political Polarization, as well as a 2015 book titled The Political Classroom, Evidence and Ethics in Democratic Education, both co-authored with Dr. Paula McAvoy, a recent guest of the show. I wanted to bring Diana on to share her research on how to have political conversations in the K-12 space, especially in light of the events of January 6th, which now feel like a lifetime ago, but also keeping in mind that the events of 1-6 do not exist in a vacuum, the product of years of what feels like increased polarization. And there's also a lot of work to do to maintain a functioning democracy. And the K-12 classroom is one potential forum to do that work. So with all that said, Dr. Diana House, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and your research included what prompted you to write the 2013 paper and the 2015 book that will serve as the foundation of today's conversation? Great. So I, um, as you mentioned, am currently the dean of the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Education, where I'm also a member of the faculty, and I've been on the faculty here since 1991. Um, Prior to uh, becoming an academic, I had two kind of distinct Um, opportunities to really learn a lot about democratic education in the K-12 space. One was being a high school teacher, and I was a high school teacher for a number of years in a very large school outside of Chicago, where I taught um, U.S. history, a law and American society class, an American government class, and many others. Um, And then after Well, actually, also while teaching, I um, was very active in the teachers union and was president of the teachers union for the last two years of my teaching career. And then I went to the Constitutional Rights Foundation in Chicago, a civic education organization that focused on uh, developing curriculum materials and doing professional development uh, nationally and internationally for uh, K-12 teachers and also for lawyers and judges. It was after that that I decided to get my PhD because I was very interested in the role that classroom discussion played in democratic education, especially classroom discussion of highly controversial political issues. And I went to the University of Washington in Seattle to study with Professor Walter Parker, who's you know, one of the nation's foremost experts in democratic education and in discussion. And it was at that time that I started doing research on the role of controversial issues discussions in uh, democratic education and explicitly in middle and high schools. And I've done a number of studies between that first study that started in 1996 and the study that you referenced that was the focus of both the 2013 article and the 2015 book. I did not know you were the president of the teachers union. That sounds like an interesting conversation, um, not for today, but certainly uh, for, for another time. So uh, I'd like to situate your research in current events, the context in which K-12 schools currently operate, which cannot be separated from the political context. So for your 2013 paper and subsequent book, both again, co-authored with Paula McAvoy, you conducted your research during a particularly interesting time in American politics. There were wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, 
the beginnings of the Great Recession, the election of the first black president in American history. And all of this punctuated by what you referred to as, quote, deeply troubling trends of political polarization and increased vitriol in the public sphere, end quote. I'm not a researcher, but I can imagine that sometimes one worries that research such as this is too attached to a specific time and place. One could have imagined a future where the proverbial temperature was lowered. This you know, feels like a trendy phrase right now. The events that you named contributed to increased political polarization. They also created a lucrative space for political conversations in the classroom. Yet these in some ways pale in comparison to what's happened over the last four years. So I'm curious how you think about the last 15 years. What's stayed the same and what do you think has changed? Yeah, it's such a great question. So let's start with what stayed the same. Um, the first thing that stayed the same is that there are, you know, millions of young people in schools and schools in the United States have a particular and distinct mission to prepare people to participate wisely and well in our political system. Um, you know, in some countries, uh, that's less of a function of schools and more of a function of something else, some other part of, of some other institution in society. But in society in the U United States, this has historically and traditionally been, you know, one of the major reasons we have public schools to begin with. So that has not changed. The second thing that has not changed is that we have, you know, lots and lots of, of teachers in the United States who are currently doing an excellent job um, teaching their students how to participate wisely and well in the U.S. political system. So, you know, when I was doing the research with Paula that started back in 2005, um, you know, there were lots and lots of teachers all over the place doing this work, and that is clearly the case today. And I, I really want to emphasize that because I think we often hear of um, examples of teachers saying that they're afraid to do this kind of teaching, and there are some teachers who are are genuinely afraid of that. But there are lots and lots of teachers who know how to navigate these very difficult um, political waters in order to uh, engage their students in high quality civic education. So that has not changed. The third thing that has not changed is that um, the United States is uh, polarized and one of the effects or perhaps causes of that polarization is we're much more likely to live close to people who have similar political views than we were in the past. And clearly the rise of social media has made that something that happens not just in the physical world, but also in the uh, online world that, you know, it's very easy for people to marinate in a in an ideological bubble you know, where they're surrounded by people who have very, very similar views. And it's also easy for people to be a victim of that without even knowing it. So, you know, one of the things that we know a lot more about now than we did, you know, 10 or 15 years ago is not just how we choose to live in a, in an ideologically homogenous bubble, but how that bubble finds us mm. and that information that's coming to us is often curated for us in ways that we're not even aware of. And all of those things were, were starting to happen and had happened um, when we were um, beginning the research. However, the major difference is um, the level of political polarization in this country has increased dramatically. So when Paul and I were writing the book, which we were doing most of the writing 
um, in like between, I would say 2012 and, and 2014. You know, at that time, I remember being kind of apoplectic about this, like, oh my gosh, how could we possibly be more polarized? I didn't imagine that it would be possible to become more polarized. And yet, you know, poli-sci uh, research certainly provides a good warrant to suggest that that in fact, you know, is the case. We also have, I think, um, kind of two things happening. One with respect to social media, you know, social media and the internet more broadly play a even larger role in the lives of most people than they did when we were starting this research in 2005. And the media landscape is really different than it used to be. You know, it's much broader, it's much more diverse. It's much easier for people to find um, news that is framed in ways that aligns with what they believe than it might have been before. Now, on the one hand, you can argue that there's some good things about that. You know, it's good to have a diverse uh, media landscape. And there's, you know, I think continues to be just excellent journalism in the United States. Um, on the other hand, you know, I am concerned that uh, it's, it's not uncommon for people to select where they get their news based on what they want to hear. Um, and I think that that is a bigger problem than it had been previously. I think the other thing is the coarsening of public discourse in the United States has worsened. That I think um, talking to people in a way that is highly uncivil is something that is more tolerated or appears to be more tolerated than, than it was 15 years ago. And I'm not suggesting that there's one way to talk to people. And I'm not suggesting that it's, it's wrong to be a staunch and very um, enthusiastic and, and even very aggressive advocate. But I do think that there is this demonization of the other that is uh, magnified by the kind of language that has become more commonplace. And I, and I really worry about that. And if, for teachers, that's a real problem. Because you know, one of the things that we think about generally is that we want there to be some authenticity between what we're teaching in schools and what happens in the world outside of school. But with respect to political education, I think we actually have to aim for inauthenticity in some ways. Mm. That what we do not want is for the kind of public discourse that we see in the world outside of school to be seen as the kind of public discourse that we value and in fact are going to tolerate in the world inside of school. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. I want to put a pin in that last piece uh, because the focus of our conversation today is around the role that K-12 can play in addressing some of the issues that you you highlighted. So you write that for some, classrooms should be insulated from the political world. For others, educational institutions have a responsibility to prepare young people for political engagement. That's from your 2015 book. What's your position on this? And uh, do you feel like your position has changed since you started doing your uh, since you started doing your research? Um, so I think about sort of the beginning of your research in the mid 2000s to publishing the book to even the last you know five years, considering the changes that have that have happened. Yeah, you know, in my first book, Controversy in the Classroom, which came out in 2009, I really focused um, quite intensively on this because I do think that. Um, insulating uh, students from the political world by not paying attention in schools to what is actually happening in the political world, you know, is a huge mistake. 
I've believed this for a long time and that belief has not changed, you know, at all. Um, and I think the, the trick is how do you teach young people to engage politically in an unfortunately highly polarized and highly partisan political system in an institution that is expected to be and that should be nonpartisan. So we normally think that if you want people to engage in, in something that has particular characteristics, you want those particular characteristics in order to get transference. But, in, but we don't want schools to be partisan, or at least I don't. I don't want schools to be considered a democratic school or a Republican school or a green school or a libertarian school. That is not, I think, the vision of public education or private for that matter, that would be good for the society. Um, and, and so I, I think we have a paradox. And Paul and I talk about that paradox, you know, in the book. You know, we want, we want to prepare students in a nonpartisan space to be able to participate wisely and well in a partisan space. And that's um, not an, an easy thing to do, but it's just part and parcel of what it means to prepare students to participate in democracy, that you're always going to have difference. If you don't have difference, you don't have democracy. Yeah, and I sort of experienced something similar, uh, at least today I do. Uh, I think about the, um, the movie Naked Gun, sort of the nothing to see here. Um, uh, GIF, and I sort of feel like that's my life a little bit right now, and I imagine a lot of other people are feeling the same thing, is sort of heads down, just kind of doing our work, while, you know, to the side of us, uh, there is a lot of stuff going on, some of that stuff feels like it's not so good, and uh, and for students in that situation, not actively engaging them in some of those, uh, you know, political conversations just feels... I don't know, maybe there is some cognitive dissonance going on uh, among those students, because why is it that there is all this stuff going on uh, outside of the classroom and inside the classroom, we're not actually addressing uh, those things that do feel, you know, topical and relevant. I'm hearing them at home. Um, so uh, I'm not sure there's a question there, but I'm just curious to hear sort of how you would respond to that. Well, I totally agree with you. You know, I think we've heard students talk about um, the difference between the kind of curriculum they're exposed to in K-12 education and what they see happening in the world outside of school. And we know it's not uncommon for, you know, some students will go off to college and take a history class and come back and say, this is an entirely different history than what I learned in high school, because what they had learned in high school was you know, a, a particular kind of narrative arc about America that was, you know, quite different than than what you would you would uh, learn in a in a more broad-minded and more historically warranted view of of history. So, you know, I think the solution to that is to make sure that that we see schools as part and parcel of democracy, not as insulated from them, not as separate from them. And that we recognize that if we really want to help young people learn how to think about these very challenging political issues and how to talk with people who have different views from them, that we've got to use the schools as uh, places where that happens. And if we don't, I think it's likely that, that many students are not going to learn that, or at least they're, they're not gonna learn how to do that with people who have different points of view. 
So getting into the teacher and the student experience, let's start with the teacher. So you write the quote, part of the ethical challenge of teaching about politics is determining where political education ends and partisan proselytizing begins. As you alluded to, you know, there are a number of teachers who are scared to do some of this work, likely because they don't want to appear as uh, proselytizers or that they're not entirely sure how to have these conversations in civil ways. I have strong opinions about this, uh, and, and I'm not sure it's sort of my place to mention them right now, but I'm curious to hear more about your perspective. One thing that I will say is I guess we should be prepared for proselytizing on uh, both sides. If I think it should, if there should be more explicit support for progressive values on the left, I should expect more of that on the right. And maybe this leads down a path of even more pronounced hyper-partisanship. In my adult age, I'm less inclined to entertain the slippery slope fallacy um, because I think this can be used by one side to avoid advocating for unpopular positions. But all that being said, do you think that teachers should be more over overtly political considering recent events? And what role should schools play in trying to address the supercharged political environment? It's such a great question and it's such a hard challenge, but it's not impossible. Teachers you know, across the United States and elsewhere are dealing with this well every day. So I think the first thing we have to do is distinguish between what we treat as a genuinely controversial political issue for which we aim for competing views um, and a best case hearing of alternative perspectives. And we don't go into those discussions with an answer that we want students to come to. We go into those discussions with a really good question. And we expect that students are going to have multiple and competing answers. And that's not only okay, but that's absolutely, um, you know, part part of what it means to do a high quality democratic education. That's different than believing that we have to be treat um, questions for which there should be a right answer as questions that should be taught as controversial questions. And of course, the hardest challenge is to figure out which are in which category. You know, what should we teach as a controversial issue and what should we teach as a question for which there is a perspective that the school and that the community more broadly wants to um, inculcate into the next generation. So for example, um, I think schools absolutely should stand for anti-racism and should stand for making sure that, that everybody feels like and actually does have a place in American democracy. So, you know, that to me is not a controversial issue that, that, you know, I don't think you can do a good job with democratic education unless you stand on the principles of democracy. And one of the core principles of democracy is that the political square is large and that we want people to, to have a place, you know, in the political system. So it's not okay that, you know, some people are provided opportunities that are systematically not provided to other people based on, on who they are. Um, that to me is not a controversial issue. Um, in a similar fashion, whether or not climate change is occurring, not a controversial issue. And pe for people who think it is, I suggest that they take a train to Texas today. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there is virtually no scientific debate in the United States or elsewhere about whether or not climate change is occurring and whether it's caused by human behavior. The question is, what should we do about it? 
And those questions are highly controversial and live political issues. So Paul and I approach this in the book by making a distinction by kind of placing questions in one of four different quadrants. You know, on the one hand, you know, questions can be either open or closed, or another way of thinking about that is they're, they're questions that are open or more settled. So um, uh, a question that is settled in my mind is, is climate change occurring? The question that's settled in my mind is, should women have the right to vote? Those are settled questions. They shouldn't be taught as controversial questions. And I think in most places, they're not being. Um, then there's a difference between empirical questions and policy questions. And empirical questions are questions for which there, there either is or could be a, a, an empirically warranted way to answer the question. Doesn't mean that that answer won't change over time. We know how science works. But there's a difference between a question that has um, an empirical answer and a policy question that might be based in part on questions for which there are empirical answers, but really is a question for which you're going to have to consider a lot of other things, that the, the, there's not gonna be an empirical answer that drives you to a, a clear right answer on the policy level. Yeah, and I, I like that framework because although more complex than I'm going to give her credit for right now. It does feel like a useful decision-making framework for educators to think about which issues feel appropriate for those controversial topics and which may uh, be, you know, more settled and, uh, and the educator plays, you know, a, a different role for, um, for those types of conversations. I also liked one thing that you said is that teachers should focus on a question and not an answer. So the way that I Sort of thought about that was a question and a process for answering that question as opposed to just arriving at a specific answer that they're hoping for but really putting into place some processes for students to have those controversial conversations yeah you know and it doesn't mean that teachers shouldn't have political views they clearly do and it doesn't mean that teachers should not share their political views with their students you know i think that we know that there are ways of doing that that can be extremely appropriate and can be, in fact, you know, very educational. I think where where I um, kind of draw the line is: Do teachers want students to have particular points of view on controversial political issues for which uh, we should be treating the issue as one for which they're multi? That's not well stated, but one for which there are multiple and competing views. And the fact that a teacher has a, has a political opinion is in, in many ways irrelevant. We would expect, you know, these are very educated adults who live and participate in American democracy. I hope they have political opinions. If they don't, and they're teaching democratic education, we've got a real problem that may be bigger <laughs> than anything else we're dealing with, you know. But I think that teachers who are really good at um, helping students um, learn how to uh, participate politically, recognize that it's not their job to try to get students to have the same political views that they have. And, um, you know, I think there are some exceptions to this. I don't mm -hmm. think that many, mm -hmm. you know, you know I, but I do think that the American public thinks there are a lot. Mm, that's I interesting. One of the problems we have is that I think there are a lot of people that believe that if you're including political issues in the curriculum, you're doing so because you're trying to 
ensure that students have a particular answer. Whereas in the world of civic and democratic education, uh, the way we conceptualize this is not that. It's the reason that we include political issues in the classroom is because that's a very potent and uh, research validated way to teach young people how to learn enough about the political system so they actually can and want to participate politically. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a real problem. And I think that's a particular problem now that teachers really have to be very, very clear with students and with others who have an interest in this, parents, administrators, et cetera, what they're doing and what they're not doing. Yeah, I mean, engaging, again, students in a process of how to do this rather than trying to guide them towards a specific answer around some of these topics. Can you speak a bit more to the framework for professional judgment that you present in the political classroom? Because I think as a teacher, this can also be helpful. You have evidence, aims, and context. And so those three components inform one's professional judgment. So how can this be used by a teacher to inform their approach to entertaining the possibility of infusing politics uh, into their classrooms? Yeah. So, so what Paul and I suggest is that there are a lot of ethical issues that teachers are going to encounter when they are teaching young people about civic engagement and political engagement. It's just the nature of the beast. And, and this is not a new thing. You know, I started teaching quite a long time ago and had to wrestle with these ethical issues all the time. And what we're suggesting is that with respect to those issues or issues that may be less ethical and more pedagogical, you know, that it's a it's really important for teachers to thoughtfully consider the context that they're in. So for example, one of the things we learned in the study that produced the political classroom is that there's a different way of approaching civic education when you're in an ideologically homogenous school than when you're in an ideologically heterogeneous school. Um, and that teachers who are good at this, you know, do do this in different ways because they really do know their context. And so, and there's, so there's all sorts of things about context that are important to know and that the context and by context, I mean, you know, the community that your school is in, the students that you have in your classroom, et cetera, the more you know about them and the more you think about how that context matters, um, the more you're gonna be able to make thoughtful decisions. And with respect to aims, we, we really ask the question, well, why are you doing this? Uh, you know, what is the purpose? And and trying to get people to go up, you know, five or 10 or 15,000 feet from the classroom and really try to think in a big way of what do they want students to know and be able to do and be disposed to do as part of civic education, as part of political education. Um, and so, for example, if you really want students to know how to engage in high quality discussion, um, and you want that because you think that is going to uh, help produce a healthier democracy, then of course, you've got to give them opportunities to do that. You know, people won't learn that unless they're given opportunities to do that. And, and what Paul and I suggest is that, that the more we can ask, why are we doing this to begin with, the better. And that um, in addition, that we're not in an evidence-free zone. You know, when people say, well, it just depends on what research you know, you choose to cite. I mean, there are certainly are things where there's um, a dispute in the research 
Um, and there, but that doesn't mean that we don't know anything. There's actually been quite a lot of research done in civic education, and there, there's quite a bit that we actually know. And the more teachers are informed about that research and that they factor that in, the better. So what we're suggesting is first, try to figure out what is the context that you're in and how does that matter and to whom and why? What are you doing and why are you doing that? And for what aims? And then what do we know about the best way of doing something? So for example, if, if you really want to engage your students in high quality simulations um, in the way that we described um, in one of the, the schools that were focused on in the political classroom book, there's a real good literature on how to do that. Like what is a high quality simulation? How do you teach students how to engage in a high quality simulation? It's not like every teacher has to create everything from scratch. And I, I do think that there are times where we don't, um, we don't advantage ourselves enough of the fact that we, we really do know an awful lot about what good teaching looks like. So there are a number of things that I like about that framework. One is, I think the context alludes to the fact that there can be ebbs and flows in that imperative to have civic conversations. Sometimes it feels maybe more imperative than other times, potentially now being one of those times. Uh, and so I'm curious if you if you feel the same way. And two, another question, you talked about aims. If I'm a teacher who believes that part of my um, responsibility is to uh, create a democratic citizenry, does that feel like a broader conversation within my school setting? Because maybe my principal doesn't feel the same way. Is that something you feel like teachers could kind of go it alone? Um, or does it, again, need to be part of this broader conversation that's, uh, that's sort of a common mission or vision uh, for uh, that specific school? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the final chapter of the book in the political classroom um, focuses on what people can do to support the political classroom specifically what can people do to support teachers in doing this kind of work and it's it's clear that teachers are more likely to do this well if they're in an environment that supports it and by that means that they're not the sole teacher in a school that thinks this is important that they've got administrators who believe that this is important and administrators who know how to you know help make the case to parents and to other mm -hmm. stakeholders I mean, one of the things that Paul and I noticed with the teachers we focused on in the political classroom, and you know, we were in, in many, many, many schools across multiple states, is that the teachers who were doing this um, with the most ease, which doesn't mean that it's easy, mm -hmm. uh, but were teachers who were part of a team that you know, everyone was working on this. They were part of a school in which there was a broader ethos about the relationship between preparing students um, to participate in democracy and, and the, what the function of the school should be. And really importantly, that they had administrators who understood what they were doing and supported it. And so, you know, if a if a parent called the administrator to complain, you know, how can it be that, you know, students in the government class are talking about, you know, political issues related to abortion, the principal knows how to respond to that mm -hmm. and 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 can and and is willing to. And I'm you know, I think that a lot of the work that we need to do in this field is to make sure that that administrators and school boards, for that matter, and parents, you know, understand why this is not an aberration, but in fact, 
this is exactly what the school should be doing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I appreciate the sentiment. I feel like I need a button on my uh, desk that says it's about culture because so many of the conversations that I feel like I have on the podcast comes down to the culture of, of schools. And if there's a culture in place to encourage those kinds of conversations, increased likelihood that those conversations will take place. Whereas if that culture isn't there, uh, it's unlikely that these kinds of uh, conversations around controversial topics will will happen. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the, you mentioned uh, heterogeneous classrooms versus homogenous classrooms. And I want to spend a bit of time there before getting into the specifics around Adams High School, because we had a, an interesting conversation um, during our first talk around what students should ask, actually be doing. Should they be practicing actual democracy or is this simulation approach um, better? But I, I do want to address the fact that in that 2015 book, you write that, quote, we are concerned that it is distressingly easy to predict who will feel silenced in class discussion. And we wonder whether it can be possibly fair that students who are already vulnerable in US society are being asked once again to make a sacrifice for others who occupy a more privileged status. You also write, quote, first when classrooms are heterogeneous along lines of social class or race, teachers need to be aware of how social divisions affect the classroom culture. So I hear this, but and it's a bit of an ambivalent, but when else do kids or adults have the opportunity to engage in conversations with such a heterogeneous group of individuals, especially now considering the comments you made about social media, where you know organizations like Facebook are you know targeting our ideological beliefs by delivering us content that aligns with those beliefs. So we, you know, both physically and in that digital world, uh, are operating in those ideological echo chambers. But I'm just curious to hear more about your thoughts uh, around that because I recognize recognize the potential dangers of political conversations in ideologically diverse classrooms, but this might be one of the few opportunities where we can share our humanity with each other to show each other that we're all human beings, that we're not just stereotypes. Well, I think we're in total agreement. You know, I mean, I think I'm, I believe that all classrooms are heterogeneous in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's on a, a spectrum of more to less. Um, and, you know, I think one of the challenges we have in U.S. society is schools are more likely to be more homogenous now than they would have been in the past because of the resegregation of schools, mm -hmm. because of, you know, people living in these like-minded communities, et cetera. That being said, you know, everyone who's taught for half a second recognizes that even students who seem to be shockingly similar are actually shockingly different. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, you know, very, very important to assume that you're going to have a lot of difference, regardless of what the group is. Um, that being said, there are, you know, some differences, especially differences around um, political ideology, you know, that that really matter um, in this kind of education. And, you know, that's not the only one, but that's one that really matters. So, you know, if you're in a classroom where where everybody in the class agrees on, you know, who should win a national election, it's a very different kind of classroom than if you're in a classroom where you've got, you know, real disagreement about that. And so, you know, as a general rule of thumb, if I was creating my ideal classroom, I would want more ideological diversity and not less. So, you know, when people say, oh, my gosh, this is so difficult, my students disagree with one another. And I'm like, well, you should be, you know, thankful for that because you would have a bigger challenge if they didn't. 
That being said, I, I do think we have to be, you know, really careful to make sure that, again, all students feel like they're included in the classroom and, and not just feel like they are, but actually they are. And we have to recognize that, that some issues are more sensitive for some students or hit some students closer to home than other issues. You know, I remember having this fascinating conversation with Mary Beth Tinker a number of years ago. And, you know, Mary Beth Tinker um, was, you know, part of the famous black armband case um, where, you know, the students wore black armbands to protest mm -hmm. the Vietnam War. And she described to me, you know, very politically heterogeneous classes. And, and I remember that from being in school at around that same time where there were students in the school like me who had parents who were very prominent anti-war activists and, you know, and that was part of what I was growing up with. And my best friend, Kathy, had four older brothers who were in Vietnam, you know, so I mean, it, and, and so I, th I think we have to recognize that, that again, this is context, right? Knowing who our, our students are. And what we learned in the political classroom is that ignoring issues because they are hit harder for some students than others is not a good idea. Um, but it is a good idea to, to be aware of the fact that not all issues are gonna affect all students in the same way. And quite frankly, there are a lot of issues where even if we really know our students well, we don't know whether they would be affected by that issue. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that response. Um, so switching gears a little bit, I wanna talk about Adam's Eye uh, again, because we had an interesting conversation about this uh, during our last talk. Can you just frame the conversation a little bit about by just telling the folks um, about Adam's High and the research that you did there and the simulation that those students were asked to engage in? Yeah. So Adam's High is a relatively large high school, about 45 minutes outside of a major urban um, area or city in, in the Midwest. And Adam's High was uh, using a unique legislative simulation as the, the heart of their required uh, 12th grade government class um, that had been developed by the teachers at Adams High. And this, um, this group of teachers had, you know, over time developed this semester long legislative simulation where several times through the semester, all the classes came together and literally formed a legislature and, and acted on legislation that students had been developing, you know, throughout the semester and there was a committee structure and all sorts of things. Now, legislative simulations are not unusual, um, but what was unusual about Adams High, and now this, this simulation has spread teacher by teacher. There are lots of schools that are using this simulation that was initially innovated at Adams High, is that it was um, you know, semester long, it was really the heart of the, the course. Doesn't mean that they weren't learning other things as well. And that the, the content of the course really was developed by the students because the students were developing the bills that the legislature was going to consider. And so it wasn't like the, you know, the teacher came in with, well, here are the eight issues that we're going to talk about this semester. The students um, themselves were developing the bills and um, and students were learning all sorts of things about you know deliberation and and all sorts of things about um, you know committee structure etc. So it was a it was a a very very robust 
uh, and very, you know, fascinating to watch deliberation. And I think um, one question that I'm often asked, including by you, the last time we talked, is, mm-hmm. well, wait a minute, that's a simulation. And what can students learn by a simulation? Because it's, you know, it's different than what a legislator would learn if that legislator was were actually, you know, was actually in the legislature. And that is absolutely true. You know, what students learn in simulations is different than they would learn if they were like actual members of the legislature. That being said, the members of the legislature in that state always wanted to come in and watch this simulation for a couple reasons. One is that they recognized that these students at Adams High were being taught to be really politically engaged. And I think they wanted to get their faces in front of them, which I always found interesting. But two, the students were always at the front of the curve in terms of what they cared about. And so very quickly, both the teachers and I think other people in the community, including local legislators, realized that the students were kind of like a positive canary in the mine in that they were on issues and turning issues into bills usually about two or three years ahead of what that actual state's legislature was doing, which, you know, in some ways is not surprising, but, you know, was was fascinating. So, you know, I remember, you know, coming out of that simulation every time I watched it thinking, oh, well, this, you know, issue seems to be really interesting to, to students. I really want to now pay more attention to this than I, than typically I had been. I would challenge whether students have to be actual members of a legislature to learn a lot of things that are really important um, to learn about political participation. Um, I do think that a both and approach is better than an either or approach. And students at this high school were given all sorts of opportunities to, you know, actually participate in political campaigns, to actually participate, um, you know, working with interest groups that were, you know, actively working to lobby, you know, issues, et cetera. So this was, you know, to mention culture, like you were talking about before, this was a very politically uh, dynamic culture where where students didn't walk away. Think I don't think. I mean, we had no evidence of this whatsoever. That students walked away saying, "Oh, well, because that was just a simulation." There's something that wasn't authentic about what I learned in there. You know, you can learn things that are really authentic in a simulation. Yeah, and can you just, you've alluded to this, but can you speak a little bit more to the research on both sides of that, the authentic simulation piece versus actually practicing democracy if that is happening at any schools throughout the country? Well, you know, there have always been schools um, in the United States that really are run in in ways that are, that are very, um, very small de-democratic mm-hmm. in that the, the students have a huge role to play in the actual running of the school. Um, there's never been a lot of them, but there's always been some. And there's clearly schools where there have been student councils and things like that that really had that dealt with robust issues. And and so so you know there was there was a lot of, of real politics going on. Um, I think that and and I do think it's really important for students to get you know experience uh, with real politics. But I think one of the challenges is that um, it's it's extremely difficult for schools to figure out how to do that outside of the school in a way that's non that's that's that is either nonpartisan 
or that you're being very, very clear that you're not setting up experiences that are only designed to steer students in a particular direction. So for example, when I taught a high school government class, there was an uh, internship that was part of that class where every student interned for at a minimum of 20 hours a week during a semester with either a campaign or with an organization that was trying to affect public policy. And I was really, really careful to make sure that there, that there were lots and lots of opportunities to do that and, and also that it not be hijacked by a particular politician. And, and I had some, some very um, rigorous conversations with politicians who didn't really understand that. Um, yeah. So I, so I think there are ways of doing that. You know, Mikva Challenge in Chicago, which is also now in a number of other cities, it's it's now kind of uh, spreading nationally. They've worked for years on, you know, how to mediate this, like how to, on the one hand, have high quality things happening in the classroom and give students lots of opportunities to both influence what's actually happening in their schools and what's happening in the larger politics um, of, of, of you know, the cities in which they're housed. And so I don't think it's an either or. Are you familiar with the World Peace Game? I am. I, I it just came to mind. I, I uh, remember sitting through a presentation on that maybe seven or eight years ago during my uh, master's program. Uh, but that came to mind as well for elementary school students engaging in a similar um, similar approach to democratic simulation. Yeah. So a last question, uh, as a former social studies teacher and as somebody who has done a lot of research in this space, if I am a current social studies teacher who hasn't quite dipped my toe into those political conversations, where should I start? What's a good place to begin to think about this work? Yeah, great question. Well, the first thing to do is to look close to home. You know, hopefully you're in a school, especially if you're a new new teacher, you're in a school where there are other people doing this and they're doing it well and you can learn a lot from them um, or in a you know neighboring school or whatever. Um, I think one of the reasons to be involved in professional organizations like your state's Council for the Social Studies, as an example, is that that's a way for you to, you know, get um, exposure to what's going on you know, in the schools in your state and in the schools in your community. So look for people close to you who are doing this. Now, the good news is because of the internet, it's easy to find somebody close to you. You might be able to find somebody who, because of the internet, is living in London and doing this work well there and can become your mentor and buddy. So, you know, if you don't have anybody in your school, it doesn't mean you can't, you know, find other people who, who are doing this. The, it's extremely important to get actual professional development. Like one of the things that drives me crazy is sometimes in teaching, we either think that unless a teacher develops something his or herself, it's not high quality. And, and there's actually, you know, kind of something wrong with that as opposed mm -hmm. to in any other professional field, that would be the antithesis of what professionalism means. What professionalism means is that you are, exposed to and using the best of what's here in your field, not thinking that everything, everybody needs to recreate everything from the wheel up. And there's really great curriculum um, that's easy to find. 
and that's really high quality and that's written by people who that's like literally what they do for a living. Whereas what teachers do for a living is teach. Now there are mm -hmm. a lot of teachers who are really great curriculum developers, but you know, that's not what we teach teachers how to do in teacher education. We teach teachers how to find and utilize and adapt high quality mm -hmm. curriculum. But as a general rule of thumb, learning how to do professional quality curriculum is something that, you know, takes, takes quite a while. And, you know, I always often use analogy to nursing. Like we would never say to a nursing student, okay, now go invent a needle and then go into the hospital and do your field experience. So, you know, I think we do teach people how to write lesson plans because we want them to learn about the components of high quality lesson plans. But that shouldn't mean that we want all the curriculum that people are being used or that are, that's being used to be developed from the ground up. So that would be the second thing I would say, find the best high quality curriculum that exists and then get the best professional development you can find. And you know, this is where we really have a problem in the United States because we don't have enough people doing professional development on how to uh, engage in high quality civic education for a variety of reasons. And there are, there's, it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of professional development going on and, and, but there needs to be more. And I think one of the things that um, is being talked about a lot nationally now in the civic education world is how do we create a system where there's just lots and lots of professional development. So if I'm a teacher in Southwest Colorado and I wanna learn how to teach highly controversial political issues, I know that there's somewhere I can go and do that. It might be there, there's a week-long summer institute that I can go to at least to start learning how to do it. But I, I do think that that having high-quality professional development matters, which is why teacher education really matters. And I think there are a lot of teacher education programs that are doing a really good job with teaching prospective teachers about high-quality civic education. And I, I really applaud those programs because, you know, it's, it's teacher education is, is hard because you, like anything else, have an awful lot to teach in often, you know, not as much time as you want. So you constantly have to make choices about what's more important than something else. Yep, absolutely. And one thing that I, I will say, I want to be respectful of your time, so I'm not going to ask it, but I'm just going to make a statement and see if you agree with it, that it's not just the responsibility of social studies teachers to entertain these kinds of conversations. There are interesting opportunities for English teachers, for math teachers, for science teachers to engage students in, in those kinds of uh, political conversations. Yeah, I'm part of a, um, a member of the National Academy of Education, and we have a report coming out in the next month or so on civic reasoning and discourse. And in that report, one of the things that we really strongly emphasize is the need to make sure that um, the responsibility for teaching young people how to engage in high quality civic reasoning and discourse is not responsibility that's uniquely or solely borne by social studies teachers. And so I totally totally agree with you on that. And, and in fact, one of the things that's interesting um, in my own work now is I'm, I find uh, myself in dealing with teachers in a lot of subjects in a more robust way than would have been the case 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. Just quick. Uh, there's a 2008 paper by a professor I like a lot, Gerd Bista, who discusses the use of division 
in the math classroom as a way to discuss, uh, you know, uh, divvying up things in uh, ways that are equal, in ways that are equitable. So as a math teacher, that's one simple way to, to think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite films is called Electoral Dysfunction, and it was um, produced by some some friends of mine. Mo Rocca is the star of it. And in one of the things in that film that I just love is uh, uh, elementary school class learning about the Electoral College by doing a simulation of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, it's so perfect. And I mean, one thing I love about it is that so many people are like, you know, it's so hard to teach about the Electoral College, uh, which it is, you know, as somebody who's taught about that for a long time, but watching these elementary students, um, and, and, and that's exactly what they're doing, right? They're, they're yeah. dealing with the, the, you know, longstanding ethical issue of divvying up. Yeah, well, I, I, my home state of California, you get a bunch of students and say that I get two senators and that, you know, one student over there also gets two senators. I'm not quite sure that I understand that. So yeah, it's a fairly simple way to uh, expose some uh, strange structures that we have in place. You know, let, let me let me end with this. You know, that being said, even though I totally agree that we want high quality civic education kind of across the curriculum, it's also the case that high quality civic education, like high quality any education needs to be uh, taught by people who have really been prepared to teach that. And so if we're going to expect the fourth grade math teacher to structure lessons in a way that magnify the opportunities for civic education, we really need to make sure people learn how to do that. And one of the, th and, and we also need to make sure that, that we take advantage of the opportunities that exist in curriculum, instead of saying that everybody in every subject across every class should be engaging students in discussions of the same issue. Um, you know, that issue should be selected in part because they give you a content win and they're helping, you know, students learn content that for whatever reason is really important. Yeah, no doubt. You cannot just expect teachers to be able to do this. They need they need training to, to do it and to do it well. Well, Diana Hess, thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I did too. Thank you. And um, I look forward to, to keeping in touch. Good luck to you. Me too. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed that. We are planning at least two more shows on how to have political conversations in the K-12 space. It's not clear to me that there's a purpose for K-12 schools bigger than supporting the development of an informed citizenry, one who is able to discern fact from fiction, truth from reality. Schools can shy away from this responsibility or they can meet the challenge head on. As Diana and I alluded to near the end of the show, it's gonna take a lot of work a commitment by school and district leaders to build a culture in which controversial topics are welcomed and a lot of teacher training, but it's worth it. If you like what you're hearing, please review us on your favorite podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for listening.